Welcome to Living Faith Lutheran Podcast. I'm Pastor Scott Martz. Visit us online at living-faith.church or in person every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the Midlothian Conference Center, number one Community Circle Drive, Midlothian, Texas, 76065. And now be encouraged by this week's message. Now is the time to take out the full-page insert called the Living Faith Notes. As you're doing so, I want to welcome those who are listening via podcast or listening or watching online at living-faith.church or are listening on AM 1390 KBEC. The main portion of our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. As a bonus, though, we're going to read verses 1 through 9, just to kind of set the scene again of this letter that Peter was inspired to write. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So far in our sermon study of 1 Peter, it's been very uplifting and, and upbeat. By God's mercy, God not giving us what we deserve, God has given us a new birth, being born from above into a living hope. And that living hope is based on the fact that Jesus came back to life. He resurrected. And and Jesus is our Lord and Savior. He also calls us his brother. He has secured an inheritance, and he has decided to share that inheritance with us. His brothers and sisters adopted through baptism, into God's family. And that inheritance is kept safe for us. It's secure. Heaven is the most secure place that there is. Until then, God God is shielding us with his great power. And, And Peter ends the section praying that God's grace and God's peace be multiplied in our lives. It doesn't get any better than that. 
And we ended last week with, with Peter in, in chapter, in verse 6, saying, in this you greatly rejoice. And I think all of us here, we greatly rejoice in those tremendous gifts that we have in Christ Jesus. They have truly changed our lives. But then comes the second part of verse 6, where he says, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And it seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? In this you greatly rejoice, but now you have to suffer grief. In Jesus you have new life, but guess what? Now you face trials. Now the facing trial part, that was something that even Peter and all the early disciples had to learn. And likewise, better handling the trials we face in life, especially those trials that are come about simply because we're Christ followers, that's something that can throw us off when those trials hit us. Yet Peter learned and the other disciples learned how to handle those trials in life and to live new even in trials. Now I want to be honest with you, trials in life, I don't like them when they come. They have hit me when I've least expected them, knocked me to the ground, and I'm still learning. I, I don't think I've reached the point like Paul did where Paul says, I rejoice in my trials. I want to reach that point, but it's hard at the time when the trials hit, especially severe ones, to rejoice. Yet in Christ Jesus, we can. We can even rejoice in, in the trials that we undergo. So let's learn from God's word about living new even in trials. Now, verse 6 is jam-packed full of several things concerning the earthly trials that we undergo. Again, Peter, through the Spirit, says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And, and the first thing that we learn is the very end, in all kinds of trials. And what we learn is this, trials are diverse. The Greek word, by the way, it's, a, it's an interesting word. It's poiklois, and poiklois literally many trials it, it means, or all kinds of, literally it means multicolored. The trials in life that we undergo are multicolored. How many colors are there? Or there are primary colors, right? But there are so many different variations. Two color charts on the screen. There are over a thousand different colors. And digitally, these all have a number. For those that do web design, they can pick a certain color. It's amazing how many colors there are. And, and that's only what we can see. The visible realm, what we can see, it, it, there's a much greater realm of light that we can't even see. But color, and, and God through Peter says, the trials you undergo are multicolored. Some of your trials are very bright, a flash in the pan, they're short-lived. Other trials are very dark and deep and long-lasting. Trials are diverse. Do not assume that the person sitting in front of you is undergoing the exact same trial that you're undergoing right now. Again, they, their trials might be a little bit different than yours. 
Don't assume, though, that other people don't have trials. We all have trials. As Christians, we face trials because we bear the name of Jesus Christ. Some are severe. Some are, are light. Some are bright. Again, some are dark. Now, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are scattered throughout a region that is modern-day Turkey. And the trials that they were beginning to experience would be, from our perspective, on the extreme range. And they, it, it was just beginning for them. I base this on the, the time that Peter wrote 1 Peter. Peter wrote 1 Peter in the 50s A.D., and there was a Roman emperor by the name of Nero. He began to reign in 54 AD until 68 AD when he would die of suicide. And he began some very intense persecutions of Christians. By the way, Nero was the first, but he wasn't the last. For the first 300 years, Christians would undergo tremendous amounts of persecutions and, and trials that from our perspective, again, would be very, very dark. Peter alludes to them in the opening verses. They're exiles scattered throughout, again, what is modern-day Turkey. The, the Greek word is diaspora. And some say, well, that simply means scattered, like there are Christians scattered in Texas. But if you examine the word diaspora, it normally means these are people who are now displaced. They were forced to move. Now, now here's what we know about Nero. Nero was an egomaniac. Nero wanted to be worshipped by people. And he forced it. So here's how it worked. Nero passed a law in the Roman Empire that people in the kingdom would have to recognize him as Lord. And so once a year, citizens in the occupied Roman uh, territory, including the Jews, including the Gentiles living in Turkey, including Christians, non-Christians, they were required to go to a pagan Roman temple to pay a tax, more or less, to buy some incense, and either a priest on their behalf, a non-Christian priest, a pagan priest, or the person themselves would, would take the incense that they had purchased and they would, they would sprinkle it over a flame, and it would flame up, and that person was required to say, Caesar is Lord. And that greatly bothered Christians, and it, would, it should greatly bother us, because Caesar is not Lord. Christians in the early church were, were known for several things. I base this on historians like Josephus, who was not a Christian, but those early Christians, they got it. They weren't perfect, but they were forgiven. Jesus said, be salt and light in the world, and, and, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Josephus and others write that the early Christians were, were known for being generous, generous with their belongings. They freely shared with the world, but they were not generous when it came to their beds. They understood the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. They honored marriage, and they kept sex between husband and wife in the state of marriage. They identified sex outside of marriage as being wrong and to be repented of. They're also known for, for reaching out to the poor and the weak, for helping the fatherless, for helping the orphans, to give orphans a safe place to live. 
they were known for being against abortion and infanticide. Yes, those two things existed in the first century. They valued life. They were known for this. They, they again, were known for their generosity and their close-knitness, even by the, the non-believing world. The thing they were known the most for, though, was that they considered Jesus, the person that the Romans crucified, to be Lord. And they believed Jesus to be alive, and they worshipped him. That's where the rub came in. Again, Nero thought he was Lord, and he was forcing Christians to say that he was Lord. And Christians could not do that with a clear conscience. So there was a consequence. Initially, it started out an economic consequence. You don't pay the tax, guess what? You're going to lose your job. And Christians were displaced. They'd have to uproot and move to a different area. And that was how the persecution started. By the way, moving can be very stressful. <coughs> Heidi and I moved six months ago. Some here have moved just recently. We had the privilege of having two pods delivered to our house, and we could load the pods, and, and over time our belongings placed in those pods and shipped here to, to, to Texas. And we could unload them with the help of members here. Thank you very much, by the way, for helping with that. But even with that, making it easy to move, it was stressful to move. Can you imagine? You are now a Christ follower. Your family is following Christ. You're baptized into him. And now you're undergoing a trial. You're displaced. In the ancient world, you could carry your belongings. You, you didn't have the luxury of pods and moving trucks. You physically had to carry your belongings. If you were a little bit more fortunate, perhaps you had a couple of donkeys to help you. If you were rich, you might have a cart or two with your belongings. But imagine being displaced because you follow Christ. They were being stressed. That's a trial. It was only going to get worse. Study it, beginning with Caesar Nero. Caesar started making the penalty worse. You don't acknowledge me as Lord, you're going to lose your life. It's well documented that in the early church, the first 300 years, we're talking millions of Christians were put to death. In, in Rome, you have the, you know, the Colosseum. That's what it was known you know, in Rome, the Colosseum and the gladiators and all that. But there's another place, Circus Maximus. And you can go there today. There's, it's a ruin. You can still tell something was there. It's like a gigantic racetrack. He had wooden grandstands. And he was in the chariot races. He wanted to do them at night, kind of like NASCAR back then. So how do you have NASCAR at night? You need lights. And, and Nero's way of doing that was having Christians arrested, sewn together with animal skins and carcasses, doused with flammable liquid, lit on fire, burned to death so that the chariots could see the track. He, what he did was absolutely cruel and, and atrocious. These Christians were about to enter that phase. I would say that their trial was more severe than any trial any one of us has un undergone. And our 21st century problems pale by comparison. By the way, though, there are Christians throughout the world today, and we need to think about them and pray for them. Other parts of the world, like China, Northern Africa, Somalia, many 
of the Middle Eastern countries where they're persecuted. Many have been put to death. Those who study it say that there have been more Christians put to death because of their faith in the last hundred years than in the first hundred years of Christianity. I would say that they were undergoing a very intense trial and persecution in their life. Having said that, we all face trials. All of us do. And just like there are primary colors, there are some primary categories of trials. In scripture, I would summarize them by three types of trials. There are physical trials, there are mental or emotional trials, and there are spiritual trials. Likewise, many of us in this room are undergoing trials that fall into one of these three categories. Physical trials. Out of nowhere, Job's a healthy man, has a lovely family, believer, but you know that behind the scenes in Job, Satan goes after him. God allows it to a certain extent. And, and out of nowhere, Job's health is taken from him. And he finds himself covered with boils and sores. He aches all over. He's on the ground. People are appalled at his appearance. He's, he's scraping the boils off of his arms. And he's feeling physical pain. That was a tremendous trial for Job. We, we can look at others in Scripture. Paul, the Apostle Paul, had his thorn in his flesh. It tormented him. He physically felt it. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was physical pain. Simon the leper, imagine, imagine having a disease of leprosy. Likewise, many of you are undergoing right now physical trials in your life. In Scripture, there are also mental and emotional trials. King David comes to mind. In Psalm 6, verse 6, David writes, I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. That's a lot of tears. This is the king, David, drenching his couch with tears in emotional trial. We can look at Hannah in the Old Testament. She was childless. She wanted to be a mom so bad, but she couldn't have children. And you read her account, and, and she's just pouring out her tears to the Lord. Again, that's an emotional trial that she underwent. Elijah, the prophet, the prophet of God, the one who went against the prophets of Baal, he was so depressed that he crawled up underneath a, a broom tree, which is a very, uh, it's a tree that hardly has any shade. And he said this to the Lord, it is enough, Lord, Take away my life. He simply didn't want to live anymore. And he's a believer. There are spiritual trials throughout Scripture. And it makes sense to us. We're, we're fallen. We still have a sin nature. The Apostle Paul, towards the end of his life, Romans chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. It's a spiritual trial. He knows his sin. He knows his shame. He knows his guilt. You can look at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Baptist who baptized Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, follow him. Shortly after that, he's arrested. His ministry comes to a screeching halt. They throw him in a dark, dungy, probably stinky prison. And in that prison, he starts having doubts. Is Jesus the one? This doesn't, this doesn't make any sense to me. Why am I in jail? Why isn't Jesus setting the captive free? So even John the Baptist, he had a, a, a servant, go find Jesus, ask him, are you really the one? If, if John had spiritual doubts, 
then, then certainly, likewise, it's common to us as well. There, again, are these struggles that we all go through that are common to Christians throughout all times. So, again, trials are diverse. Getting back to our text, according to Peter, they're also temporary. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So trials are temporary for a little while. Little while, maybe it's a month. Maybe it's less than a week. Maybe it's for several years. Maybe it's your entire lifetime. But I'm here to tell you, even if, if, if it's your entire lifetime, compared to eternity, it's only temporary. Those early Christians, again, it was, the pressure was put on. They're dispersed. They're facing things because they're now Christ's followers. Many of them would be put to death. They would have this severe trial probably for the rest of their life. But where are they now? And where have they been for over 2,000 years? In heaven, right? Their trials are over, have been over for a very long time. They are in the presence of their Lord, free from all the, the trials that they underwent here. So some of you are going, undergoing severe trials right now. And even if it lasts the rest of your life, again, God's word is true. Trials in this life are only temporary. Again, verse 6, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Trials cause grief. Trials cause grief. The word grief means that we're pressed down, that, that we're feeling things that we don't like to feel. It makes us feel very uncomfortable. We don't want to be in that spot. By the word, way, the word grief here is the exact same word used to describe how Jesus was feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was so stressed out, he's, he's sweating blood. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. That's grief. You should expect it. While you're undergoing severe trial, you will be face grief. By the way, you know of somebody that's going through a challenge right now, a trial. Maybe it's a health problem. Expect them to be like Job. Job wasn't in his best character and personality. It would be hard to be around him, yet he was a believer. Likewise, brother or sister in Christ undergoing a difficult time, expect that they may lash out at you. Sometimes that's what happens. Again, trials bring about grief. I think of Jeremiah 15, verse 8. Jeremiah, the prophet, says, Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Again, he, those words indicate that he's not handling it very well. Wise King Solomon said this, there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. So don't be surprised again if undergoing a trial, likewise, you grieve. The Bible is just being bluntly honest with us. All right, so, so far, you might be wondering, that's really encouraging, Pastor Martz. We undergo trials and we may grieve because of them and there's pain involved. But please be assured that trials are useful. They're useful for God, and ultimately they are useful for us as well, myself included. Now, some of the trials we undergo 
are a direct result of God's kingdom advancing. We sometimes forget about that, the kingdom of God. We're in enemy territory. Satan has taken claim of this world. God's kingdom is direct opposite of Satan's kingdom. And, and if a kingdom is advancing, there's going to be pushback. And Satan's pushback oftentimes, again, causes grief and trials and, and even pain. Peter is going to say this in verse, chapter 3, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Again, as a, a soldier of God, we have to expect it. 1 Peter 4.19, So then those who are suffering according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Those Christians would have to endure an awful lot. And yet, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, says, it's going to happen. Having said that, consider an adge of, a, a badge of honor. Jesus said, they persecute me, they will persecute you. Jesus said, some of you are going to lose your life because of my name. Now, so God uses trials to advance his kingdom. For us personally, he uses trials to correct us. All of us need correction, myself included from time to time. God can even use trials to bring this about. Sometimes God has to use trials to correct us. Psalm 119, verse 67, the psalmist writes, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. What did God use so that he wouldn't go astray anymore? Affliction. Jesus is the good shepherd. By nature, sheep wander. What do you do with a wandering sheep? Sometimes the consequences of their actions have to, to teach them. But if Jesus is the good shepherd, he's going to, do, going to let the consequences teach us in love. Sometimes, again, trials are there to afflict us so that we understand and we more, more closely follow the good shepherd. I think of the, the fourth friend of Job. Job is in his agony and his pain. Three of the friends give him very bad advice. All the first three have to repent of what they say to Job. But there's a fourth friend. He doesn't have to repent. And it's interesting, uh, if you read that section of scripture, the fourth friend basically told Job, God speaks to us in our affliction. God speaks to us in our affliction. C.S. Lewis firmly believed this. C.S. Lewis wrote, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. Pain plants the flag of truth in a rebel soul. But sometimes God has to get our attention, and sometimes he uses pain uh, to do this. Now, God uses trials as well to keep us humble. Paul's thorn in the flesh, that thing inside of him that tormented him, Paul tells us that God used it in order to keep him from becoming conceited. That was one of Paul's signature temptations, to be conceited, think of himself more highly than others. And, and God allowed that thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. God uses trials as well to teach us to rely on his strength, not our own strength. I had to learn this in the hard way four years ago. I was healthy, strong my entire life. God allowed me to go through a, a year of pain. It was intense pain. It was excruciating pain. Without going into detail, 
I simply couldn't sit. It was painful for me to sit, really painful. It took over a year for doctors to figure it out, and I'm so thankful that I don't have that anymore. But, but during that, that year of affliction, year of, of, of trial, I learned an important lesson. I think I was relying on my own strength too much. I can do anything. I can do this. You know, no one can stop me. And even in ministry, I can do this. And instead of relying on God's strength, I was relying on my own strength. So God took away my strength. And I, and, and I think I've learned the lesson. We, we read in Scripture, um, actually we don't read in Scripture, some say that God won't give you any more than you can handle. How many have heard that? God won't give you more than you can handle? It's not true. You read Scripture, you see several times where strong people in their faith are given more than they can handle. And they break down. That's why David covered his couch with tears. The promise is not that God will get, won't give us more than we can handle. The promise is that he won't give us more than he, us plus him can handle. Right? De, uh, Paul said this in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's God's strength that gets us through our problems. And if you're relying on your own strength, Again, sometimes God can take that away through a trial so that you rely on his strength. And that's the lesson that, that I learned. God uses trials to build character in us. Character building. James 1, 2 through 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. So James would say it's character building to undergo a trial. Peter tells us that trials refine our faith, or God uses trials to refine our faith. Verse 7, these have come, these trials, so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Gold for 5,000 years has been a precious metal. And over the last 5,000 years, there have been people that, that, that smelt and refined gold, and some of them have gotten very good at it. And I think some of the ancient world were better than even us, the, the, the technology we have today. To make gold pure, you have to crush it, the ore. And you have to smelt it. You have to heat it up in a container that can handle the heat. And you have to let the impurities rise to the top, and you have to skim them off. And it's not easy. It's very difficult to really refine gold and make it pure. But people have refined the process, and, and those who are very good at it, they get to a point where the impurities are just a very small film at the top. And, and they know how to skim it off so they can clearly see a reflection of themselves. Your faith is of greater value than earthly gold. Earthly gold, we think it's imperishable. We think it, you know, it, it lasts. It's imperishable in the sense that when, when Christ returns, this world as we know is going to be destroyed. But your faith is more precious than gold, and God allows you to go through the crucible of pain from time to time, facing difficult times, heating things up so that, so that God is making you more dependent upon him. And in the process, again, your faith is being refined which in, in the end is a good thing. Job put it this way, Job 23.10, but he knows the way 
that I take, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. By the way, the image of God lost through sin, that image is being restored through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. And we're told this in, in Romans 8, verse 29. We have been predestined to be in the image of Jesus Christ. And if God wants to use trials to do that, if God has to use trials to do that, it's a good thing. God is using trials for his good. Now, trials are also good for us, though. You might be wondering, why is God allowing this in my life? This is difficult. Why, God? And one of the answers might be because God's going to use you to help somebody else who undergoes a similar trial in the future. We're told this in 2 Corinthians 1.4, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. God comforts us. He does not abandon us. He does not forsake us. He is there with us through the trials in life. We are the body of Christ. God uses us, his redeemed, to reach out to others that are going through difficulty. You've been there. There's one thing to have sympathy for somebody. I can have sympathy for a lot of different people. But if I've not gone through what they've gone through, it doesn't mean as much. If I have empathy, that means more. Empathy means I've been there. I've gone through this fiery trial. And I know what you need. Friends, that's how trials are useful to us. Now, I began by pointing out that trials are multicolored. Well, it just so happens that Paul uses that exact same word in chapter 4. It says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Trials, multicolored, but also God's grace, multicolored. I want to think of it this way. If you want to paint your house, um, if you're like me, you're bad at picking colors, and I'm going to come up with some colors that, that don't match each other. But if you're smart, you'll go to Home Depot, right? And you're going to go to the paint department, and they already have it laid out for you that this trim matches this color. It complements that color. And grace does the same thing. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received, received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. The ultimate form of grace is what Christ has already done. Paul says, God's grace is sufficient for me. What Jesus has already done, going above and beyond, going to the cross, taking your sins upon his body, being crucified to pay for your sins, giving you everlasting life, pardoning you of your sins, that's sufficient to help you through any trial. But in addition to that, God uses the body of believers. And he, he uses us who have gone through similar things to reach out to others. It's grace, his undeserved gift of God, and it complements whatever trial we're undergoing. So multicolored grace complements multicolored trials. One final point, verses 7 through 9. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you, you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
for your receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter says that in the end, when Christ returns, when we see him face to face for the first time, that our trials now will result in praise later when Christ returns. Trials now will result in praise later when Christ returns. When I read this verse, I think of one person that I ministered to for over 18 years. She was born a normal child, so they thought. But within the first year of age, year of life, they could see there's something not quite right with Becky. Her crawling wasn't very strong. They did some tests and found out that she had muscular dystrophy. She could ride a trike briefly, but then she had to be placed in a wheelchair. And she's been in a wheelchair for her entire um, life. All she remembers, as far as her memory, is being in a wheelchair. More than likely, she's going to die in a wheelchair. And I had the privilege of taking her through confirmation class and, and the privilege of, of sharing the grace and love of God with her. And there's a, there's a verse in Isaiah that says that when Christ returns, we will be like colts, newly born, who are leaping for joy. If you know anything about horses and animals and colts, you see a colt that's jumping in a field that's so filled with joy and excitement for life. And the Bible uses that illustration saying that that's going to be us when Christ returns. I'm sure when we see Becky running for the first time, not in a wheelchair, when I see her, likewise, filled with joy, and these words of Peter will come true where praise will result, um, considering, again, the trials that we face right now. My friends, there is new life. There is new life even through trials by the power and the grace of God. Thanks and praise be to Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to this week's message. Check us out online at living-faith.church or better yet in person. We worship every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the Midlothian Conference Center, number one Community Circle Drive, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, right off the Highway 287, across the street from the Courtyard Marriott. We worship upstairs in one of the conference rooms. Now we are convinced that Jesus died for all, that we might live forever. That's the gospel. The gospel has changed our lives. It can change your life as well. Have a great day.